Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Grab a seat. Uh, he is risen. Hey, you guys are well practiced. We still have a few weeks before that actually is what we celebrate. But we are celebrating the resurrection today. So you're like, wait, what are we going to do in a few weeks? Celebrate the resurrection. Okay, so that's going to happen multiple ways, and we're excited about it. Um, this is a really fun day and a fun text. Honestly, all week long, the last couple weeks, as I've been prepping for this, as many of you were out serving the community last week. Thank you for that. That is awesome. And we're always excited to see how um, many people who profess the name of Jesus going out and being the hands and feet of Jesus can proclaim his goodness to our community. So thank you for doing that and taking part in that. But this section is, it, it, it seems almost a little weird to me when we come into it and read it because I'm, I'm a little perplexed on how did the disciples miss it? Like, how, how did they miss it? How did Mary, how did all these people miss it? I mean, how did they not expect, like, three days? Like, why were they not counting down the clock to saying, the tomb will be empty on the third day, it's going to happen? Because, I mean, he told them many times that he would raise from the dead. After his resurrection, the disciples remembered that he had said this in John chapter 2, verse 22. So, so they, they remember all the times he had said it afterwards. Um, Jesus compared himself to Jonah in Matthew 12, 40. And, and on occasion, he clearly announced his resurrection after three days. One example is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What I didn't go to is right after that, that's the part where Peter comes and rebukes Jesus for saying this very thing. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So they had, not only had they heard him say that he was going to do it, but Peter in his, in his brashness had tried to correct Jesus saying there's no way that this should happen. On Thursday of, of this, of his last week in ministry, he began, um, he again promised to be raised up and meet them in Galilee. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 32 and Luke 24, 6 through 7. Even on, uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 64, it says the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will become worse than the first. See, so even the enemies remembered it. So how did, how did Peter and John and, and all of the, the wonderful ladies that spent so much time following Jesus, how did they, how did they miss this? I think the, the same is true for all of us. We miss a lot of aspects of what the resurrection is supposed to mean for our life today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 says it this way, For I delivered to you as of first importance. So if you want to know what the most important thing Paul's telling him, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was supposed to die in accordance with Scripture. And then he goes on and says that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
So all along, and you look at all the scriptures that go back from, from Psalms and, and all over in the Old Testament, all the way back to the promise in Genesis right after the fall, like everything is talking about how there is this redemption coming. All of the genealogies are weaving for us, uh, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one anticipation all the way to Jesus Christ? And yet they missed it. One scholar says it this way, he says, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel message and a key doctrine in the Christian faith. It proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that, is, that his atoning work on the cross has been completed and is effective. The empty cross and the empty tomb are God's receipts, so to say, telling us that the debt has been paid. Jesus Christ is not only the Savior, but he is also the sanctifier and the intercessor. One day he shall return as the judge. The resurrection is what makes what we believe, what most of you believe, drastically different than any other belief system out there. The fact that we worship a, a Lord, a Savior, a King who was both, both man and God, both living and then died and then living again, that is, that is a foundational principle for us to, to see everything else through. But they missed it. And if we're honest, I think with ourselves, there are, there are tons of things that we miss practically day in and day out in everyday life and the resurrection as well. There are present-day implications to the resurrection. I love that the Lord has allowed us to, uh, to get to the resurrection here that we can then talk about in a few weeks as well. There are things that we need to be reminded of. And so the, John is, again, telling this story. He's one of the latest gospels. Most likely he had seen some of the other gospels in, in circulation by the time he's writing this. And so he's trying to give people an understanding of what happened as an eyewitness. And so he starts with, with Mary in, in, verse, in verse one, on the first day of the week. So this is what we know after their Sabbath, um, the first day of the week, Joseph and Nicodemus had just gotten Jesus's body off of the cross, most likely around 3 p.m. ish time. They kind of rushed to get Jesus buried and do the burial process. And so here we see the women coming to do it right because the men were doing it wrong. No, I'm just kidding. They probably weren't doing it that way. They were probably knowing that it was done in haste and they wanted to do um, whatever had been missed. And so they, so Mary shows up at this place. John only brings her in singular, but then also when she goes to tell the disciples that he's gone, she says, we. So when you look at the other gospels, it seems most likely that Mary and a few other women came at this moment. Mary solely ran off. The angels appear to the other women. <laughs> she tells Peter and John, Peter and John run back. John outruns Peter. He makes sure to keep that in there forever, right? Like everyone knows that one, right? And he gets there, and then Mary probably came back at that point, and that's, that's where this happened. Now, Mary Magdalene, it's interesting that God uses this woman. What's even sad is if you look at Luke, you see that when the women came to tell the disciples that they just didn't believe it, they dismissed it. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is crazy talk. It makes no sense at all. And yet John takes pains to honor her and keep her in here as the first person to see, not only that, to see the tomb, but also the first person to interact with the resurrected Jesus. Now, Mary, we don't know a lot about her. We know just a little bit, and you get it in Luke chapter 8. Mary is most likely of well means. She has a decent amount of money, but our, our introduction to Mary is she's one of the women that had seven demons in her that Jesus healed, and then she began following him and funding the ministry of Jesus, one of the women that was helping fund the ministry of Jesus. And so this is a woman that had spent years being tormented by demons. 
and Jesus in one interaction had freed her and then she became an intricate part of the ministry that God had for Jesus to do while walking this earth. So in, in verse 3 we see, uh, so she ran, went to see him at Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, again, were, and, and said to them, the one whom Jesus loved, we talked about this early on, you can go all the way back, but uh, Jesus, um, the one is, this is most likely John who wrote this book, um, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outrun Peter and, and reached the tomb first. Now, it's funny. There are, there are scholars that have literally written theologies and, and, and beliefs based on the idea of John outrunning Peter and Peter being first in the tomb. I think that's just... I think John's just giving us the story of how it went. If you're retelling the story, like, and I mean, let's be honest, he's probably excited that he outran Peter, right? Because Peter was always getting first in a lot of other things. He walked on water, like he got all these things, like Jesus proclaims upon this rock, like on the, the belief that, G, that Peter has. But John outruns him. And I, I love that story because, because to me, it shows two things. One is both of these men, it took immense courage to do what they were doing took immense courage for them to go. They would have known that the guards that were guarding the, the, the rolled stone, the, the rolled stone um, was this stone was meant to be moved, so it wasn't so heavy that it couldn't be done, but even the women going to the tomb, we see in, in Matthew are going, like, how are we going to move this? Who's going to help us do this? So it, it took some strength to do so. But, they, but you see that Peter and, and John run back into where they're at, like where it's hostile. Who knows if it's a trap? This could be a trap for him. And they both run in. And, and typical Peter, John stops, says they, they, they both run towards the tomb and both of them are running together, but the disciple ran Peter and reached the tomb first. So, so John gets to the tomb and then stopping, he kind of looks in. He, he leans into the tomb, which most of these tombs would have been caves and, and, and there would have been like flat kind of benches in, conc- in, in the rock on the ground that they'd be laying and there was space to walk and then a, an area that they could put the bones once they've been in place before they move them to somewhere else. And so the picture is that most likely John is kind of, he's looking in like tentatively, you know. And Peter, typical Peter, just like, you know, just jumps in and like runs right into the tomb. And John's telling us what has happened. Again, there's lots of amazing things that, that fit and fulfill prophecy that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But I think really John is just trying to give us an account of what it was like to be there in this moment as an eyewitness. And Peter jumps in. Peter goes right in front of them. He says, and, um, and stopping looking in, John saw uh, the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, probably breathing a little heavier and a little frustrated, right? And he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So what is John doing? This, this story should take all of us back to a, a, another story in the Gospel of John. You guys remember a, a, a man named Lazarus? Lazarus? Chapter 11, verse 44. Jesus shows up after Lazarus has been in the tomb, starting to stink a little bit. That's what the spices are there for. And they're all weeping. Even Jesus weeps over this. And we see this moment where he's like, stop the, stop the crying. He's not dead. And people are laughing at him. He says, Lazarus, come out. What happens with Lazarus when he comes out? I picture him like this. Because he's still tied together. And Jesus tells him, take, 
the, the strips off of them. Take them off so he can be there. They would have normally taken a handkerchief that would have either covered the whole face or been rolled up and tied over the head to keep the mouth from opening. And, and their hands would have been bound and they would have been tied in, kind of stripped up so they couldn't do it. So Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Everyone's like, he might stink, right? And he comes out of this tomb and Jesus says, help him. Help him get his strips off. Well, here's Jesus' burial site with 75, 65-ish pounds of spices. I don't know if you've ever tried to... Sorry, my microphone's having all sorts of problems here. I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, pick up a handful of spices, but it, or, or if you like sneeze wrong around spices, they tend to move a lot. And the picture that John gives us when he looks in there is he sees the strips that would have been around Jesus' body and the spices in place, and they're all still in place. There's just no body in them. So if, if the idea of someone stealing it, why would they unwrap him and, and keep the, the burial site and so nice? And then why would they take the head thing and then fold it up in a separate spot? John is, is, is helping cue us in. Guys, he, he was there and now he's not. And the way he's not makes no sense unless something different happened. And so John is, is, is again making this push that we will hammer again on Resurrection Sunday, to believe in Jesus and who he is. Lazarus needed someone to untie his, from his clothes and his head, and Jesus just left it all behind altogether. Well, then in verse 8, we pick up, and, and John says this. He says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first... <laughs> just in case you forgot that part. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was there first. Also went in, and he saw and believed. Now, what's interesting, what we don't see in the English is, is from first five and six and then eight, where they say the, uh, the word look or see. Verse five is when Peter or when John looks in, it's to, to glance, to look in, just an just a occasional thing. Verse six, where Peter is in, is to look carefully and to observe or to be perplexed. That's what the Greek word means there. And when it comes to this last one in verse eight, it means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Now, we don't know what John specifically believed here, but the entirety of the Gospel of John, if you remember, he's been going on this whole rendition of seeing and believing, seeing and believing, seeing and believing, seeing and believing. But there's also been this huge push that Jesus says, you guys want a sign. You want to see so that you can believe. Believing without seeing is where faith comes in. And at this moment, John is the, is the only disciple, at least, that, that shows that he believes to some extent that Jesus must have been resurrected, that Jesus is not dead just by seeing the tomb empty without seeing Jesus' resurrected body. All the other disciples need to see his body. Some of them need to walk on a road and spend an hour or two hearing him recant and tell the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures about how they fulfilled what would happen with the Messiah before they would recognize Jesus as the resurrected king. But John believes. He believes something here. We know in verse 9 it goes on and says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures and he must ri- that he must rise from the dead. So that is in a plural sense. So it means that even though Peter looks at this dumbfounded and perplexed and, 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 and confused, and John looks at it and believes that both of them still hadn't figured out what resurrection through the scriptures really meant and what it was, what it was doing. So there's still some, some confusion there. And then it picks up again. And then I love this. There's just confusion there. And, and they go home. 
again, I, I don't know about you, but if you saw that, I feel like you wouldn't, the first step wouldn't be to just go home. I'd probably keep looking around like, Jesus, are you here? Like, like waiting for like, I feel like I'd be doing something here. And that's what we see ultimately Mary doing. Mary sets back up. The best we can understand is at this point, Mary got back to the tomb because John was apparently like a, a sprinter, right? Peter was a little slower than him. Mary works her way back there. The other women had gone at this point. They've already had a conversation with the angels, the other women. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. And so they've left to go tell people, right? They're trying to get all the scattered disciples that were so tormented and frustrated on that Friday. And, he's, and they're going to tell him. And, and Mary just wants to see Jesus. And so she, she stays there. And she says she's weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in and looked. So this is again, she's looking in. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now, just pause for a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you've had a conversation with angels, but I love how casual Mary takes it. Like two angels sitting like in the tomb. Like, like she, they're, they're inside the tomb, chilling at the head and the foot of where Jesus would have been laid. And she's just like, yeah, they took it. It's not like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? What's going on? Like nothing. She's just like, yeah, they've taken Jesus. He's gone. She's, too, she's just super casual. And, and maybe in her grief, she's so stuck on the fact that her Lord is dead, that she isn't able to see that he's not really dead. And so they, they tell her, so then she turns around. And the idea here is that she's startled or something causes her to turn And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, there is all kinds of theories as to why she doesn't recognize him. From the simplest of her eyes in tearing, she can't see it, to it's still dark out, to Jesus' resurrected body is different enough that it's not recognizable. But one theory that I want to just add in there that I think kind of makes sense the last time they saw Jesus, there probably wasn't much of his body that wasn't covered in blood and destroyed and mutilated and bruised from beatings. To see him all of a sudden, whole. Now we know that his body is different in some way. One scholar says it this way, that the same body in which he died It was the same body in which he died, yet it was not only restored to life, but changed some. He was still human, but now glorified. What was sown perishable was raised imperishable. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. We'll read in a little bit. He could pass through doors and walls. We see that a little bit later in this chapter. Yet he ate solid food. His natural body, which died at Calvary, was raised and transformed into a spiritual body, new enough that those who knew him best didn't recognize him at first, but also soon enough knew it was indeed him. So she doesn't recognize him at first, but then Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Same question the angel asked, but then he adds, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Now that is a huge case of mistaken identity, right? Like if you're like gardener who takes care of the cemetery or Jesus, the Lord. Okay, anyway, sorry. Assuming him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, Picture this, 
like Mary, like, was she going to just like pick him up and walk by herself? Like, what's going on? Or is this maybe a rendition of the fact that she has means, finances to bring in some help to do this? So she's still stuck on, I just want the dead body of my, my king. I just want the dead body of my Lord. And Jesus, tell me where to take away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, I don't, I don't know if Jesus was doing something to, to teach Mary or if it was just him uttering her name that all of a sudden that brought all reality to her. We're told that when he breaks the bread in front of the disciples, their eyes are opened and they see things like, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked about the scriptures and him? But all he says is Mary. We see this all over. We'll see this a little bit later when the, the, a few of the men are fishing and he's on the, on the lakeside and he's like, we don't know who this is. And finally, it's the Lord. We saw this with Peter and, and the people when the storm was going on, like, it's a ghost. And all he says is, it is I, and that was enough. There is such a value here. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about himself being a shepherd and the sheep hearing his voice. And Mary just needed to hear his voice and maybe it was just to hear him say her name. And in an instant, She's reminded, and she comes and falls at his feet, pictures um, him, her literally grabbing her le- his legs as if a child that's grabbing your legs where you're trying to leave. Like when you're carrying, I do that with my kids where they sit on my legs and run around. Um, I don't run around. I'm not in that shape. But I drag them slowly. Um, but that's what she's doing. She's, she's supposing, um, she, Mary, she turned and said to him in Amer- Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a very, very, very high regard teacher. It's not a, a, a simple one. It's a, it's a, it's an endearing term, a, 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 a powerful term. And she's like, Rabboni. And then she clings to him. She holds on. And then he says this really weird thing. Don't cling to me, which is almost a rebuke. For I have yet not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Listen to this. This is important. Look at what Jesus does. Go to my brothers. To my God and your God, my father and your father. This is the co-heirship that we've all been waiting for. This is the, the adopted in as sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. Right here, resurrected Jesus is telling Mary, you go give that message to my brothers, your brothers. Don't cling to me. I don't think this has anything to do with like that he's in the middle of ascension. He hasn't ascended yet and he's going to ascend and then he shows up to the disciples. I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's entering in where Mary needs him to enter in and say, hey, our relationship's going to look really different. You're, you're wanting to cling to the physical me, but the physical me isn't going to be here anymore. I've been saying this all along. I must leave so I can send the helper. Right? This has all been taught along the way. And so I think Jesus is telling her, look, you don't have to cling to me in this way. I'm not leaving you physically, yes, but I will never leave you now nor forsake you. And so she gets up, she runs back and she tells him, um, all we get that she tells him is, I've seen the Lord. (laughs) That's it. I don't know if she says anything else. There's a little dash there. Maybe she said some more and we're just to assume that. But that was enough to probably change and ignite the hearts of all the disciples. I also think, and we'll talk about this a little bit um, in a couple weeks when we talk about Peter, but I also think the reason why Peter had um, some confusion is if you remember the last interaction that Jesus and Peter had was not a, a great one for Peter. And I think he's, he's, he's still wrestling with that, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. 
So this resurrection's happened. He's risen. And, and the rest of the story is in, in John is, is, is counting where he interacts with different people in the resurrection. And we see people that believe and see people that doubt. And, and we go through things. But, but what I wanted to do today is I wanted to stop and, and recognize that there are implications today, implications for you and I, those that profess the name of Jesus. The resurrection has a present day implication for us. And I wanted to just hit a few of them. There are many things that it means, but I'm just going to talk about three. The, the first one for us, if you like to take notes, you're welcome to do this. I don't usually do this often, but I feel like I got to give the note takers something every now and then. Um, we have his promise. Because Jesus resurrected, um, no matter how difficult it gets in our life, we have a promise. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, 13b through 14 says it this way. It says, we are afflicted in every way. Just in case you're wondering, when you feel afflicted, that every way <laughs> encompasses it. You haven't been afflicted in some way that this isn't applicable to. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then down into in verse thir- in chapter 13, or verse 13, sorry, it says, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that, and here it is, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. See what that means? The resurrection means that not only because Jesus has resurrected, that we have a promise that we too shall be resurrected. Our bodies that are wasting away is not the end for us. We get a new body. We become a new creation entirely in the resurrection. He goes on and says in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, can I get an amen to that, right? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now hear this. It's important. We want to take that day by day and assume it just at the resurrection, but that's today. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, even though our outer self is wasting away. So we don't lose heart. Why? For this light, I don't know if you've ever thought about Paul's life and all the things he went through. I would not put what his afflictions were in the light category. But here he says, for this light, momentary, by the way, that momentary is your entire life. Vapor, as James says it, here today, gone tomorrow. This momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Don't gloss over that. You have nothing to compare what the future glory looks like. You can't even assume. We can't understand that beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It says that the eternal glory far outweighs our worst suffering, guys. Your most difficult hardships that you might be going through right now, the eternal glory far outweighs it. Let that sink into that spot of your heart that needs to be brought to, to, to hope. Our sufferings may be weedy, weighty, but knowing the end of the story puts them into perspective, doesn't it? If I know that there's a future glory far beyond that, that can't compare to anything else, puts our sufferings in the right place. This is the first implication of the resurrection. The second is this, is we have a mission, his mission. 
See, and I think this is the one that we tend to lose sight of way too often because we get perplexed or confused like 1 Corinthians was talking. See, his, his mission has never changed. No matter what happens throughout life, whether good or bad, all of us have his mission, not just the missionaries that we send money to. All of us who bear the name of Christ have a mission. Let me just show you a few of them. 1 Peter 2 Nine, but you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So you're not even yours. And here it is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim is a present imperative. We are to be doing this all the time. When we work at home with our kids, at the coffee shop, while you're driving on Eagle Road, which is so hard for me, right? Like whatever it is. We have his mission. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. Look at this. We are his possession. We are his workmanship. Your life is not your own. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. Walk is almost always in the New Testament as you go. In them. Let's give one more, just for, for good sake. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm sure many of you have this memorized. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go, therefore, under this authority, under my authority, as his workmanship, as his possession. Now, my authority, what Jesus is saying, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he goes on, and I love this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a beautiful promise. Our mission has not changed, church. You want a new initiative? It's here. It's the same initiative it was thousands of years ago when Jesus raised from the dead. Our mission has not changed. Feelings of uncertainty or fear shouldn't pause the mission. See, at times when it's hard or when we're excited about things in, the, in this world or they're good or common graces, we tend to get ourselves distracted from the fact that Jesus' resurrection and knowing the end of the story shows us that we have his mission and purpose. You have a purpose. Your life has meaning. He's not done with you. He has a race set before you that you are to run with endurance. No matter what your job is, or how old you are, or how long you followed Jesus, there are good works created beforehand and proclamations that are needed to be done and disciples to be made. No one gets a pass from this mission. The realization of Jesus' resurrection brings about the promise of our resurrection. We saw that. This is the, this is the third implication. We have a hope. We have a hope that isn't based on our circumstances. And, and this is so important because I think many of us tend to lose hope so quickly. Just, just look at one news article and hope can be lost like that. But we have a hope that, that, that transcends our circumstances. And that, that is that we will be resurrected. That no matter what happens, we have a hope greater than anything that this world could take from us or anything it could ever give us. Not even death can take this from us. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We have a hope. Death can't even scare it out of us. As scary as death is, we are made alive because we die in the first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus, we experience life. Revelations 21, 1 through 5 talks about it this way. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new or renewed earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, which in this text right here is a metaphor for violence, the, the violence was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As Jesus' resurrection seals this future for us. That means no matter how amazing we try to make this life, it still has no comparison to the resurrection. But there is no more violence, no more mourning, no more sadness, no more anger, no more dissension. Our brains can't even understand that because even our best relationships experience those, right? If you're married, you've experienced all that. (laughs) We see in scripture, in the resurrection, that we will know God like he knows us. First Corinthians talks about that that we will be in perfect unity, that the body won't be breaking down, and on and on and on. See, I think what's happened in our way, maybe we aren't tricked by Jesus' tomb being empty like they were in the first century, but I think what's happened is we've been tricked to believing that this life that we're living is all we've got. We've been tricked into believing that if we can just make ourselves the healthiest version of what we think we are, that life will be perfect, and it's never ever come through for us. We have a hope that is far beyond this world, sealed in the resurrection of Jesus and culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, we know the end of the story. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book with someone that they don't know the end, but you do? The whole time you're reading the, as, as difficult as this, the, the climactic difficult spot where everything seems to fall apart, you always know the end. Guys, life is that for us. As difficult as season is for you, as hard as the season that's coming is for you, you still know the end of the story, which is you with all believers in the kingdom of God where his rule is in place and there is no more breaking down of bodies. There is no more fear. There is no more sadness. There is no more tears. There's only joy that can be felt by by dwelling with our God. Because the resurrection should change the way we live our lives today. We shouldn't get so bogged down on what is or isn't happening in the world around us. I'm not saying we can't engage in that because we are commanded to go and be light. That's another one of the things that we are supposed to be doing. But it should change everything. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says it this way, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
We might have fear, but we know it's only momentary. We can live in a way that doesn't let fear rule us. Why? Because we've been given a love and a sound mind that only can come from the gospel. That can only be ours in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, this should just light us up from within. We have a hope. A hope in the scriptures is always a way more concrete thing than wishful thinking. Hope is not, I hope my car starts or I hope I have enough money in my bank account for this. Hope in the scriptures is concrete. Hope is a, let us hold fast, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Our hope is not based on anything that we need to think ourselves in. Our hope is based on who he is. So why doubt? Why let ourselves be taken off of his mission, taken off and outside of his promise or of his hope? You've been, you've been duped if that's happening. Hope in anything else is foolish. Stop putting your hope in your own strength, in your own marriage, in your own finances, in your own stuff. Stop putting your hope in that. It's foolish. It will not sustain you. Let us press on with his promise and his mission and hope that transcends our circumstances and difficulties. A hope that lasts forever. As believers, we still have the same exact mission and mindset. We have hope. Our struggles are momentary. Our mission isn't dependent on our social or economic or employment. We are not to be tossed all over like immature children by every window of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth, Ephesians 4, 14. Where you put your hope will truly change the way you live and see reality. If your hope is that this flesh that you are carrying around is wasting away, but inwardly you are being renewed day by day, then, oh man, come Jesus. If your hope is that you want to experience this one aspect of life before Jesus comes, then that one aspect of life has become more important than Jesus to you. It's not wrong. I want to see my kids grow up, but I want me and my kids to be with Jesus today in his kingdom more than that. Because let's be honest, I don't like what they're growing up in. Let's be honest. If you hope in the resurrection, you hope in Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection is the realization of hope. It's just that simple. We have the full assurance of what is going to happen in ultimate victory in Jesus. For all who believe in him, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from his love. Church, hear me on this. This should change everything for us. Not some things, not most things, and not just Sunday things. This should change everything for us. Build your life on this certainty that we know the future and that whatever is in front of us is circumstances and it has no power over our future. We can move forward with his hope, with his promise, and by all means, let's stay on his mission because that's what he's, he does for us. That's what this resurrection is. John is just telling us with, with an ironclad eyewitness, I saw the, the handkerchief. It was rolled up. The spices weren't messed with. How does a body just disappear from being unwound? The only way it can happen is if something different than what we would all expect happened, and that's resurrection.
Jesus' resurrection seals for us so many profound and beautiful things. And, and what's sad to me as a church today, I think I find myself so often forgetting that and living my life as if what I have in front of me is all that matters. Oh, so foolish of me. That all that matters is building this career or, or keeping these things, or in my case, let's just build a church. Like, no, no, guys. The resurrection means that there are people that aren't home yet. It means right now that you have family and friends that don't know Jesus and aren't home. That means that some of you in here have been in close proximity to Jesus, but you keep keeping yourself confounded or perplexed and instead of surrendering your life entirely to him because you know, you know if you're honest that it's gonna cost you everything and that's true, it does. But it's absolutely free. You don't have to do anything to get it. The resurrection of Jesus is why we're doing this. If you're here at church today, I hope that that's why you're here. Because Jesus is alive. And you will spend your life with him. If you're like, man, I'm not there yet, then that's great. Ask some questions. Let's walk with you. Let's talk about it. Man, if we know that all tears are going to be gone, and, and that, that in the resurrection we will all be one, and that in the resurrection there will be no wasting away, then then we, empowered by his spirit today, something that the resurrection instigated, we can experience unity through all kinds of disagreements and and different beliefs today because we know it's it's ours in Jesus. And that's how it's going to be. So you guys, the the resurrection affects every area of our life. It affects how you are a spouse. It affects how you live your life singly. It, is, it affects how you parent. It affects how you go to work. It affects what you do with your money. Are you, are you saving for a future that is a part of this vapor of a life? Or are you investing in heaven? This is what the resurrection does to us. We're going to take communion, but we're not going to do it the way we have in the past. It's going to be passed to you. And the songs, we want to give you guys, we're going to have three songs we're going to sing. The band's going to come up, and I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to pass communion. What I, what I want to do is I want to give you guys space to just ask the question, where have you forgotten the resurrection? Which, which character would you have been in the, in the story? Would you have been more excited about just the fact that you're running faster than Peter? Would you have been the one that was so stuck on Jesus being dead that you weren't able to see that he was alive? We're going to, we're going to sing a song. And then at the next song, we're going to pass the communion. Um, and then we will take it after the third song. But my encouragement, my challenge, my plea is, man, the resurrection should affect how we sing to Jesus. It should affect our, our, our prayer life. And so if you need prayer, go to the prayer room. There are safe people that will pray with you. If you need to confess, then confess. And here's the coolest thing about Jesus resurrecting that in our sinfulness, we should always be drawn to our Savior, not run away from Him. Because He always draws us in as His children. And Mary got to hear first thing from Jesus, tell my brothers, going to my God and your God and my Father and your Father. We are a family because of the resurrection. So let's live like that in light of the resurrection. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. What a profound and beautiful and amazing thing. I can't imagine how, um, 
how difficult and hard and amazing and incredible the emotions must have been for those disciples to experience a loss that, that maybe none of us have ever come across, or maybe some have, God, like they did with Jesus. And then three short days later to be like, just kidding, I'm here. Oh, what a beautiful thing. May we not be unaffected or complacent by that, God. If there is a coldness or a, a complacency in our heart, God, would you ignite a fire in us that causes us to, to, to change the way we live our lives because we're so tired of living for ourselves and want to live for our King. And Father, if there is anything that needs to be broken free in our hearts, um, Lord, I pray your spirit would do that in a mighty way today. Draw your children to you, whether that's through first believing or those that have believed for a long time that have just gotten complacent and sitting on the sidelines. And Lord, may we not be a body of people, may we not be a church that is not actively a part of your mission. By proclaiming your excellencies, by making disciples, by doing the good works that you prepared beforehand because we are your possession. We are your workmanship. We are meant to display you and to bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' powerful, profound, resurrected, alive again name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.